You're listening to the free ad-sponsored re-release of American Elections Wicked Game, a weekly march through every presidential election from 1789 to 2024. To listen to all episodes right now ad-free, go to intohistory.com. Subscribers there enjoy ad-free listening, early access, bonus content, and more from a growing collection of great history podcasts. Start your free trial today at intohistory.com. It's January 1781 in Camden, South Carolina. The Revolutionary War is in full swing and the Crown has a firm grip on the Carolinas. A British colonel on horseback inspects the long line of redcoats marching through the muddy streets. Sergeant, let's get these men moving. Yes, sir. The British just delivered America a crushing defeat at the Battle of Camden, and they've made the town their main supply post for their southern campaign. Camden is filled with American prisoners of war, forced to labor for the British garrison stationed there. <coughs> Among the prisoners is a lanky boy of 13 and his brother, both couriers for the Continental Army. The boy struggles to carry a sack of feed for the horses. Out of the corner of his eye, he watches as the British colonel dismounts his horse and steps right in a deep puddle of mud. God damn mess. You, boy. The boy is exhausted. He knows if he does not deliver the sack, he will be struck. So he chooses to ignore the officer. Boy, I called you. Put down that sack and come here. I have a job for you. <coughs> Warily, the boy does as he's told and approaches the officer. The boy is ill. Smallpox is spread among the prisoners, and the boy is one of the unlucky ones. He and his brother have both caught the illness. See this muck on my boots? Clean it off. Boy's eyes fill with rage. Deep down, he hates the British. They killed his older brother just last year, and after what he suffered in the camp, the indignity of cleaning the officer's boot is too much. Did you hear what I said, boy? Clean my boots. No, sir. You will clean them. And now you should polish them, too. I will not, sir. You dare to find me? I do, sir. You may clean them yourself. You insolent whelp. The infuriated officer draws his saber and strikes down at the boy, slashing his left hand to the bone and gashing his head. That will teach you your place. I'm an officer in his majesty's service. You, boy, you are nothing. The boy was left by the officer bleeding in a pool of mud. Two weeks later, as he recovered, his brother died of smallpox. A few months after that, his mother died of cholera after nursing wounded soldiers. His wounds eventually healed, but the scars of British hatred left an indelible mark. The boy would channel that hatred into a distinguished career of military service, fighting his way up the ranks and becoming a general in the U.S. Army. He would fight to become a congressman and a senator, and in 1828, this orphan child of Scots-Irish immigrants would win the fight to become President of the United States. Andrew Jackson had lost his family, but he would find the sense of belonging he had always desired in the service of his country. Wicked Game is sponsored by NetSuite. There's that saying. 
That's just the cost of doing business, and it makes it sound like there's nothing you can do about certain expenses. And yeah, sure, if you run a business, there are certain things that are just going to cost what they cost, and recently they've probably begun costing more. But not everything is just the cost of doing business. Smart companies know their numbers and can reduce their costs. One great way of doing both is switching to NetSuite, the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. And with NetSuite, you'll reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You'll cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math and see how you'll profit with NetSuite this year. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com elections. That's netsuite.com slash elections, netsuite.com slash elections. Wicked Game is sponsored by BetterHelp. I need to get something off my chest. Think about that phrase. Visualize it. The metaphor is that something is literally on your chest, weighing you down, pressing down upon you, that when you lay in bed at night, there's a heavy burden bearing down on you. And everyone has these weights, deep concerns, feelings of guilt, anger, or misery we try to keep to ourselves. But therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And as the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. And if things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. No waiting rooms, no traffic. It couldn't be simpler. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash elections today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash elections. From Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is American Elections Wicked Game. Andrew Jackson's opponent in the 1824 election, John Quincy Adams, called him a barbarian who could hardly spell his own name. Jackson's greatest political rival, Henry Clay, called him ignorant, passionate, and easily swayed by the base of men who surround him. But in 1824, General Jackson was able to win the love of the common man and the popular vote. But when he failed to get an electoral majority, the choice of president was left to the House of Representatives. It was there that Jackson believed a corrupt bargain between John Quincy Adams and Speaker of the House Henry Clay stole the presidency from him. Adams made Clay Secretary of State. In exchange, Jackson believed Clay helped Adams win the election. Four years later, in the 1828 contest, the number of people turning out to vote quadrupled. Jackson won both an electoral landslide and revenge against Adams. But Jackson's fight with Henry Clay was far from over. The election of 1828 was one of the most contentious in American history. Jackson was called a murderer for the many duels he had fought in his career. His mother was called a prostitute, and he was called a bastard mulatto. 
But it was the attacks on his wife Rachel during the campaign that cut deeper than any British officer Sabre ever could. Jackson's rivalry with Clay was the plague of his first term and was at the heart of the election of 1832, a struggle between the Washington establishment and the champion of the common man. This is episode 12, 1832, The Reign of King Mob. It's December 23, 1828, on a drizzly and devilishly cold day in Nashville, Tennessee. An army captain in full uniform hurriedly exits the outhouse of a Nashville inn. He struggles to rebutton the brass buttons of his coat, a piece of paper in his hand. Mr. Edmondson, Mr. Edmondson. Mr. Edmondson, the innkeeper, tends to the fire. Mr. Edmondson, did you hear? How could I not? Barging in here like the devil was after you. As Edmondson stacks logs, the captain holds out his soggy note. A message came for me today. What does it say? It's Mrs. Jackson. She passed in the night. What? Mr. Edmondson knows the Jacksons well. They're the pride of Nashville. His inn is a second home to Old Hickory and his wife whenever they leave the sanctuary of their plantation, the Hermitage, for a trip to town. There must be some mistake. Mrs. Jackson was here just a few short days ago. She was looking for a dress for tonight's festivities. She looked perfectly well. Edmondson is part of Nashville's party planning committee for Jackson's send-off. The whole town will be there to wish Jackson farewell as he heads to Washington to assume the presidency. There's no mistake, sir. The notice requests all officers come to the Hermitage with badges of mourning. Her funeral is, is tomorrow. Edmondson takes the damp handbill in his hands and reads the words in disbelief. This must be a trick from Judge McNary, that old coot, Adam's man. The other night at the illumination, his house was the only dark one in Nashville. He's just trying to sully the celebration. No, sir. One of Jackson's slaves delivered the note. He says his mistress died of a broken heart. A broken heart? Mrs. Jackson got a hold of a pamphlet in town a few days back. Edmondson sighs. He knows exactly which pamphlet she saw. (sighs) A man came about the inn last week trying to deliver a stack of them. Called her an adulteress. And worse things that I care not to repeat. What did you do? I told him to leave. I told him libelous pages were not welcome in this house, nor anywhere in Nashville. Distraught, Edmondson sinks into the chair by the fire. <sighs> I should have warned the general about the pamphlets. He might have been able to shield her from it. Oh, don't blame yourself, sir. The fault lies with its author. No doubt that snake, Henry Clay. I hope General Jackson shoots him right between the eyes. Edmondson crumbles the notice and throws it into the fire. We'll think about that later. Right now, there is much work to be done. Edmondson quickly heads for the door. Where will you go, sir? To speak with the mayor. We're no longer throwing a celebration, Captain. We're planning a memorial. In the fall of 1828, at the height of the election, Jackson did his best to shield his wife Rachel from the assaults on her character in the press. Supporters of John Quincy Adams, hoping to smear Jackson, had focused their attacks on Rachel's previous marriage. Jackson blamed the accusations of adultery and bigamy for weakening her heart and causing her death. The send-off celebration in Nashville on the evening of December 23, 1828, became a final farewell to Rachel Jackson. Her husband, General Andrew Jackson, was devastated. It's rumored that on the night of the 23rd, he laid her body in his bed and slept by her side. On Christmas Eve, 1828, 
10,000 people gathered at the hermitage to pay their respects. Mrs. Jackson's body was dressed in the white satin dress she had bought for the send-off celebration. In her eulogy, Jackson said, I am now the President of the United States and in a short time must take my way to the metropolis of my country. I would have been grateful for the privilege of taking her to my post of honor and seating her by my side, but I go alone to the place of new and arduous duties. Rachel's tombstone would later read, Here lie the remains of Mrs. Rachel Jackson, wife of President Jackson. Slander might wound, but could not dishonor. Jackson left for his inauguration, a widower. Those close to him said that Rachel's death aged Jackson 20 years. Several weeks later, Jackson arrived in Washington on February 11, 1829. He broke with precedent and refused to greet outgoing President John Quincy Adams at the White House. He made his feelings about Adams quite clear, saying any man who would permit a public journal under his control to assault the reputation of a respectable female, much less the wife of his rival and competitor for first office in the world, was not entitled to the respect of any honorable man. Adams, in his own protest, did not attend Jackson's inauguration. March 4, 1829, the day before the inauguration, was a beautiful spring day. To accommodate the throng of people, Jackson moved the inauguration to the eastern front of the Capitol, making him the first president ever to take the oath of office there. The inauguration would traditionally remain on the eastern side all the way through Jimmy Carter's inauguration in 1977. The massive crowd gathered to welcome Old Hickory, the nickname Jackson had earned during the War of 1812. It was his victory in the famous Battle of New Orleans that also earned him a status as an American hero. One eyewitness to the inauguration described the scene. It seemed as if half the nation had rushed at once into the capital. It was like the inundation of the northern barbarians into Rome. The West and the South seemed to have precipitated themselves upon the North and overwhelmed it. Their every motion seemed to cry out victory. Strange faces filled every public place and every face seemed to bear defiance on its brow. That night, on the evening of March 4th, after the inauguration was finished, the crowd pushed its way to the White House. What would have typically been a high-society inaugural ball soon descended into a raucous party of frontiersmen. The throng of well-wishers flooded the White House, all hoping to get a glimpse of their champion president. The mass of people became so aggressive with their adulation that Jackson might have been crushed had he not escaped out the other side of the building. Meanwhile, inside the White House, the tables of celebratory cakes, ice cream, and orange punch were overturned. The mob of revelers utterly destroyed the interior of the mansion. An Adams supporter who witnessed the event later wrote, What a scene did we witness. The majesty of the people had disappeared, and a rabble, a mob of boys, Negroes, women, children, scrambling, fighting, romping. The whole house had been inundated by the rabble mob. It was perhaps a portent of things to come. The reign of King Mob, as Supreme Court Justice Joseph Story labeled it, had begun. Before the dust settled on the inauguration celebrations, Jackson and his cabinet went to work consolidating power. The election of 1828 had birthed a new era in party politics. Political maneuvering had become a sort of sport and the newly formed Democratic Party had won the championship. The man who knew the game best was Jackson's new Secretary of State, Martin Van Buren, otherwise known as the Little Magician. Van Buren had been the man behind the curtain in Jackson's bid for the presidency in 1828, and with the White House now in their possession, the spring of 1829 became a culling. 
Jackson and Van Buren cleared out the executive branch of those who were politically antagonistic to the Democratic Party. Van Buren declared triumphantly, to the victors belong the spoils, coining what would come to be called the spoils system, the practice of rewarding those who had offered support during a campaign with powerful government offices. It had been the promise of political posts that had encouraged a great deal of Jackson's political and financial support during the election. Nearly 1,000 officials were removed from office to make way for friendlier political appointees, amounting to 10% of all positions. The Washington elite were apoplectic as Jackson, the conqueror, doled out the spoils of political war. Jackson treated opposition to his presidency the same way he treated foes in his personal life, giving back worse than he received. He was the general again, strong and decisive, unwavering in his determination regardless of who stood in his way. Jackson acted on what he felt was best for the country and did not bend to others' opinions. Though he was a poor child of North Irish immigrants and an enemy of the British aristocracy, Jackson's unremitting autocracy had his political enemies brand him as King Andrew I. But in the spring of 1829, Jackson's biggest threat was not his political enemies. It was his own cabinet. During the 1828 election, an alliance of disparate groups had grown together to dethrone John Quincy Adams. It would take every ounce of Old Hickory's ability to maintain peace in his administration and keep these disparate groups together. But despite his political maneuverings, cracks in the administration began to show. Standing on opposite sides of the widening rift were two men, Secretary of State Martin Van Buren and Jackson's newly elected Vice President, John C. Calhoun. Calhoun hailed from South Carolina, the same as Andrew Jackson, he had served as President Monroe's Secretary of War and was a candidate in the crowded 1824 presidential election. Knowing he could not win in 1824, Calhoun had withdrawn his name, focusing instead on becoming John Quincy Adams vice president. But during Adams' tenure in the White House, Calhoun and Adams became estranged. In the election of 1828, Vice President Calhoun had done the unthinkable. He defected from Adams' re-election campaign and threw his support behind Jackson who went on to win. And it was Martin Van Buren who had convinced Calhoun to switch to Jackson's side. But in 1829, Calhoun would turn on Andrew Jackson and his Secretary of State, Martin Van Buren. Calhoun's mutiny centered around a tawdry scandal involving another cabinet member's wife. Her name was Peggy Eaton. The petticoat affair, as it would come to be called, created a rift inside the Jackson administration and threatened to derail his presidency and any prospects for a second term. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
The Petticoat Affair began just two months before Jackson's inauguration. On January 1, 1829, a young senator from Tennessee named John Eaton had married Margaret Peggy O'Neill. Peggy O'Neill was not a woman of society. Like Andrew Jackson, she was a child of Irish immigrants. Her father owned a tavern called the Franklin House, a popular gathering place for Washington politicians. Peggy's childhood had been spent tending bar, playing piano, and dancing for the guests at her father's inn. In 1816, she had married a Navy man named John Timberlake while only 17 years old. In 1828, after 10 years of marriage, news spread that John Timberlake committed suicide at sea by slitting his own throat. Less than a year later, on New Year's Eve, 1829, Peggy married John Eaton. Senator Eaton had been a good friend of Andrew Jackson's for many years, and Jackson had encouraged the marriage. He felt a connection with a girl he called the smartest little woman in America. Ahead of her time, socially, Peggy was outspoken, opinionated, and had a charming wit. She was also extremely beautiful and garnered plenty of attention from men and plenty of suspicion from their wives. But scandal seemed to follow her everywhere. During Peggy's first marriage, while her late husband John Timberlake was at sea, she allegedly had an illicit affair with Eaton. It was said that when the affair was discovered, Timberlake had killed himself from grief. All this was Washington gossip until March of 1829, when Jackson appointed Eaton his Secretary of War. A delegation of concerned Democrats held a conference with President Jackson to convince him to reconsider the appointment, but Jackson ignored them, feeling a debt was owed to Senator Eaton, who had publicly come to his wife Rachel's defense during the slanderous election that Jackson felt killed her. Eaton's appointment sent shockwaves through Washington, and it caused turmoil inside his cabinet. In the spring of 1829, the wives of the cabinet members publicly snubbed Peggy Eaton, ignoring her at social functions and leaving her off invitation lists. The ringleader of the bunch was the vice president's wife, Floride Calhoun. Jackson's cabinet agreed on nearly nothing. Little united them, and the peace between the men was precarious. John Eaton's appointment, and thereby Peggy's social ascendance, shattered their thin alliance and set in motion the biggest scandal of Andrew Jackson's presidency. When the scandal reached a fever pitch, one of Jackson's biggest supporters stepped in to defend Peggy Eaton and Andrew Jackson's presidency. It's the fall of 1829 in a ballroom in the nation's capital. The Russian minister is playing host to the men and women of Washington's high society. Washington is all abuzz about the appointment of Secretary of War John Eaton. And in fact, the wives of Jackson's cabinet members are in open revolt. They've made their views clear. Peggy Eaton is not welcome. Secretary of State Martin Van Buren sees it differently. He's a widower himself. And like Jackson, he's sick and tired of the attacks and slights on Peggy's honor. So Van Buren takes matters into his own hands. Mr. Eaton, please, sit by the fire. Have a drink with me. Gladly. The air upstairs is uh, too stuffy for my liking. <clears throat> I'm sure it is. How fares Mrs. Eaton? We well, saw what happened at the British minister's ball. She was shunned at the table. Insulting my wife is apparently Washington's favorite pastime. She's a resilient woman, far more than me. I don't know how she stomachs that gaggle of hens. Hens indeed. I should like to roast a lot of them, beginning with Mrs. Calhoun. Eaton smiles, but then his demeanor turns serious. He leans in close. Mr. Van Buren, we cannot go on like this. Mr. Jackson has been most hospitable, but Mrs. Eaton has her limits, and 
and so do I. So do we all. On that front, I've manufactured a situation this evening that will elevate your wife to the dismay of that harem. What situation would that be? Our guest of honor, Mr. Hyahens, the minister to Holland? Yes. I've arranged for you and your wife to escort Mr. and Mrs. Hyahens to the dinner table and sit beside them. Suppose the minister has heard the rumors. I've already spoken to the minister. I've told him all about how wonderful your wife is. He looks forward to dining with you both. Thank you, Mr. Van Buren. My pleasure. Believe me. Their conversation is interrupted by one of Van Buren's men. Mr. Van Buren, could you come with me, sir? There's, there's been an accident upstairs. An accident? The vice president's wife, Mrs. Calhoun, she, she what? She bumped into Mrs. Eaton. Accident indeed. Mr. Eaton, it's time to see that goose cooked. Eaton and Van Buren rescued Peggy Eaton from the commotion upstairs and from her uncomfortable exchange with Mrs. Calhoun. But the drama of the evening was just beginning. Van Buren had tried to get out in front of the scandal by singing Peggy's praises to the Holland minister, but someone else talked to the minister's wife. Floride Calhoun cut Van Buren off at the pass and told the minister's wife about the scandal. The Hyagans played cat and mouse with the Eatons all night. Instead of letting the Eatons escort them to dinner, they skipped it and slipped out early. Insulted by the escape and snubbed towards Peggy Eaton, President Jackson threatened to send the Huygens back to Holland. As for his own cabinet, Jackson had enough. He had lost his own wife to salacious gossip and partisan attacks. He would not permit further abuse of Peggy Eaton. So in late January 1830, he arranged a dinner with his cabinet and placed Mrs. Eaton beside him at the table. With her at his side, and with his characteristic anger and vengefulness, he admonished everyone present, the cabinet members and their wives. Jackson called the attacks on Peggy a slander on her character. And as Jackson defended Mrs. Eaton, it was as if he was defending his late wife. Jackson said, Female virtue is like a tender and delicate flower. Let but the breath of suspicion rest upon it, and it withers, and perhaps perishes forever. Jackson vigorously defended Mrs. Eaton's honor and challenged those spreading rumors to prove their slanders. In a letter, he wrote, Truth shuns not the light, but falsehood deals in sly and dark insinuations, and prefers darkness because its deeds are evil. The psalmist says, The liar's tongue we ever hate, and banish from our sight. And banish he would. Jackson threatened to remove his cabinet if their wives would not fall in line. In the winter of 1830, at the height of the unpleasantness, Mr. Eaton vengefully told President Jackson that back in 1818, then-Secretary of War John Calhoun had attempted to censure Jackson for his actions during the invasion of Florida. At the time, Jackson had taken a force into Florida and claimed the territory as part of the United States. During the military action, he had shown his deep hatred for the British by hanging two officers. Members of Congress had been strongly critical of Jackson's actions, none more so than Calhoun. But until this moment, Jackson had been unaware of Calhoun's attempted blight on his character and had further strained their ability to work together. In the end, the wives' control over their husbands proved stronger than Jackson's threats. Calhoun and his supporters continued to defy Jackson's commands, and they left Jackson no other choice. By April of 1831, Jackson would fire all the members of his cabinet. The Petticoat Affair, or the Eaton Malaria, as Jackson's rivals called it, completely dismantled Jackson's administration. Out of the scandal, 
a new unofficial council of loyal advisors emerged for the president. Colorfully referred to as the Kitchen Cabinet, Jackson would rely on their council moving forward. Though Jackson had the power to clear out his cabinet, he did not have the ability to remove his vice president, despite the fact that Calhoun and his wife had been at the center of the petticoat affair. In his youth, Jackson might have challenged Calhoun to a duel, but as president, he found himself stuck with the man. All Jackson could do was sideline him and make it known he no longer had faith in his vice president's opinions. Martin Van Buren felt no remorse over the loss of Jackson's esteem for Calhoun. Not only were the two personal rivals, but Van Buren had hoped to one day be named Jackson's heir apparent. Now, with the fallout from the Eaton affair, Van Buren found himself in a politically advantageous position. Van Buren, out of solidarity with Jackson, resigned with the rest of the cabinet to give the public appearance that it was merely an administrative reshuffling. In December of 1831, to reward his loyalty, Jackson nominated Van Buren to serve as his minister to Great Britain. Without waiting for the Senate's confirmation, Jackson dispatched Van Buren overseas to put him to work. On January 25, 1832, the rise of Van Buren and the fall of Calhoun was solidified when, as fate would have it, the Senate's confirmation vote for Van Buren ended in a tie. This put the tie-breaking vote in the hands of Vice President Calhoun. With years of bad blood between them, Calhoun voted against Van Buren's confirmation. Though he was thus denied the position of minister to Great Britain, in the end, Van Buren got what he truly wanted. Jackson's nomination for re-election in the 1832 contest was all but a certainty, but Calhoun's move and the political backlash against it solidified Van Buren as the best possible choice for Jackson's running mate. Calhoun was out, Van Buren was in. The greatest threat to Jackson's re-election would not come, though, from John C. Calhoun. It would come from Henry Clay and the National Republican faction. Jackson and Clay despised each other in a visceral, personal way that went far beyond politics. Clay had given Jackson plenty of reasons for these feelings. They included the corrupt bargain of 1824, the dirty campaign that stole Rachel Jackson's life. Jackson even came to believe that Clay was secretly behind the petticoat affair. Jackson said, I am fully warranted in charging Mr. Clay with circulating these slanderous reports. I have not the least doubt but that every secret rumor is circulated by the minions of Mr. Clay. So it was to be a showdown. While Jackson prepared to defend his presidency against a challenge from Henry Clay, Clay prepared to take advantage of the discontent between Calhoun's Southern faction and King Andrew I. In the 1832 contest, Clay would manufacture a crisis that would further isolate Jackson politically. He would force upon Jackson a lose-lose situation and put Old Hickory's strength to the test. Icebergs, jagged rocks and rocky straits, mutinies, misfortune, and broadside battles. There are more tales of the sea than survivors to tell them, but the podcast Shipwrecks and Sea Dogs is doing a good job, and you can listen to all episodes of that podcast plus many others, including American Elections Wicked Game, without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com. Shipwrecks and Sea Dogs is one of my favorites from last year, a podcast about the greatest mishaps, misfortune, and misadventures of the sea. You'll hear stories of corruption, greed, bad intentions, and just plain horrible decision-making that resulted in some of the worst maritime disasters from all over the world. And some of these are more recent than you think. 
All episodes are ad-free, including bonus content and more at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com. Tired of ads and promos like these? Want to skip ahead to newer elections? You can listen to all episodes of American Elections Wiki Game without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com. But not only that, you also get access to over a dozen more incredible history podcasts, also all ad-free. That includes the American Revolution podcast, a deep and thorough investigation of the times, people, and politics behind America's fight for independence. Also, the battles, because we can't start a new American nation without guns. And the American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end, from its origins in the French and Indian War, through the war itself, and on to the founding of the United States. Get American Elections Wicked Game, the American Revolutions podcast, and many others ad-free with bonus content at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com. It's February 1832 at the White House. Martin Van Buren gently knocks on the door to Andrew Jackson's bedroom. Mr. President, may I come in? There's no answer from inside. Van Buren has been overseas in England for the last few months, and now, after his diplomatic post was denied by Congress, he's returned to the Capitol. Mr. Van Buren calls out, Mr. President, your staff has told me of your condition. May, may I come in? Still no answer. Jackson is not well. He's been in bed for days. He feels the weight of his political isolation and the threat of his enemies who conspire against him. Van Buren calls out one last time. I pray that you're properly attired because I will open this door whether you're ready for me or not. <clears throat> President Jackson is sprawled out on the bed. His tall, slender frame, a specter of the man Van Buren saw only months ago. Oh, they told me you were in a bad way. I had hoped they were exaggerating. Hello, friend. The ghost speaks. <coughs> yeah, uh, I know I don't look it, but, but I'm quite glad you are here. While Van Buren was away, Henry Clay, Jackson's political nemesis, saw a weakness in Jackson's coalition. Since Calhoun's break from the president, the South has been in revolt. So Clay introduced legislation to recharter the Second Bank of the United States. In so doing, he's painted Jackson into a bit of a corner. <coughs> Uh, so sorry about your appointment. Don't be, Mr. President. It is Calhoun who should apologize for voting against me. Regardless, I'm glad you're here. It's Clay. <coughs> He's... <coughs> Jackson breaks into a violent coughing fit. Van Buren offers the president his kerchief. <coughs> no, I'm fine. I'm, <coughs> I'm fine. <coughs> it's Clay. <coughs> and that damn bank. Jackson considers the second bank unconstitutional. He doesn't believe that an institution with so much control over the people should have so little accountability. He has heard rumors from several members of his kitchen cabinet. The bank is using its so-called money power to further its agenda and line rich men's pockets at the expense of the people. It's a nuisance. I wish nothing more than to cause its immediate destruction. <coughs> well, that is what they want, Mr. President. They have you in a dilemma. Those in Pennsylvania favor the recharger of the bank. If you veto the bill, you will lose Pennsylvania, and you cannot lose Pennsylvania and survive. <laughs> if I do not veto the bill, I will lose fatally in the South and the West. The recharter wasn't due for three more years. This is Clay's strategy to separate you from the love of the people. <coughs> <coughs> now you know why you find me in this state. 
I've already spoken with what friends we have left in Congress. They will do what they can to obstruct its passage or buy time until after the election. I don't do inaction, Mr. Van Buren. Yes, but at this point, no decision is the best decision, Mr. President. <coughs> the, ba the bank, Mr. Van Buren, <coughs> is trying to kill me. <coughs> but I will kill it first. Andrew Jackson was an island unto himself. One of his closest confidants once said of him, of all men I have known, Andrew Jackson was the one most entirely sufficient for himself. In 1832, Jackson would once again take matters into his own hands and wage a war against Henry Clay and the Second Bank of the United States. But as he geared up for that fight with Clay, the war with his former vice president, John C. Calhoun, waged on. On April 13, 1832, at the Jefferson Day Dinner, President Andrew Jackson and Vice President John Calhoun publicly came to blows when Jackson rose to make a toast. Our union, it must be preserved. Calhoun fired back. The union, next to our liberty, most dear. The toast was, in a manner of speaking, a war of words over a political standoff known as the nullification crisis. Having seen his own family sacrificed in the cause of the revolution, the orphan President Jackson saw the Union as his second family. In his mind, this Union, this American Union, crafted in part with Jackson family blood, was indissoluble. As its president, he held the sacred role of being the nation's temporary steward, perhaps even something more, its father. So while Jackson strongly favored states' rights, especially when it came to the bank, he would never extend those rights to the point of threatening the Union. During his time in the White House, Jackson had pushed for protective tariffs to bolster American industry. The South had pushed back, calling the tariffs unconstitutional. In his own response to the tariffs, John Calhoun had drafted an essay titled Exposition and Protest. Calhoun espoused the right of states to ignore unconstitutional federal laws. And then, in 1832, South Carolina, at Calhoun's urging, threatened to use force to prevent the federal collection of the so-called Tariff of Abominations. Jackson, the champion of the common man and a proponent of limited government, found himself in the position of demanding federal power. In May of 1832, the Democrats held their first national nominating convention. Jackson went unchallenged. Calhoun was jettisoned in favor of Martin Van Buren, the Democratic Party galvanized around the Jackson-Van Buren ticket and prepared for an electoral fight with Henry Clay. And in the summer of 1832, Clay successfully made the bank charter the main issue for the National Republicans. He called the bank a great and beneficent institution, absolutely necessary to a sound, ample, and healthy currency. On June 11, 1832, despite Van Buren's attempts to stall the vote until after the election, a bill rechartering the second bank passed the Senate. On July 3rd, it passed the House and was presented to Jackson for his signature. Jackson did what he always did. He trusted his instincts. On July 4th, 1832, he vetoed the bill. Clay used the veto to push the King Andrew narrative, but Jackson answered him days later with a powerful veto message. His famous argument against the Second Bank, though it was one of the longest ever written, can be summed up in one word, monopoly. Jackson called the recharter unconstitutional, writing, Each public officer who takes an oath to support the Constitution swears that he will support it as he understands it, and not as it is understood by others. 
Jackson defended the idea that each branch of government had its own duty to protect the Constitution from the other branches. If the president deemed the actions of the Supreme Court or Congress unconstitutional, it was his duty to fight them. President Jackson's message worked on the people. The election was held from Friday, November 2nd, to Wednesday, December 5th, and the results of the election shocked the country. Out of 288 possible electoral votes, Jackson earned 219. He had won in a landslide. Clay had only won 49 votes. Jackson had again been supported by the masses, but his war with the Second Bank would continue for years, and his war on the bank would earn President Jackson strong support in parts of the West, South, and North. Some newspapers went as far to advocate Jackson for a third term. The election of 1832 saw the death of the National Republican faction, the successor to the Federalist Party of Alexander Hamilton and John Adams. In its place, a new, more powerful political movement would emerge around opposition to Andrew Jackson's policies. The Whigs got their name from the British Whig Party, which opposed absolute monarchy. The American Whigs would stand against King Andrew I and rally around the principles that Congress, not the president, should control the levers of power in American democracy. But the election of 1832 was significant for another reason. Out of the 288 electoral votes, a single vote was cast for former Attorney General William Wirt, the presidential nominee for the first third party in American political history, the Anti-Masons. The Anti-Masons had created their party in opposition to Freemasonry. They believed the secret organization was nothing more than a corrupt, elitist group who held the reins of political power and installed through shady backroom deals the leadership of the United States making the very idea of the Freemasons in conflict with the ideals of Republican government. Washington was a Mason. James Monroe was a Mason, as was the current President of the United States, Andrew Jackson. Not only was Jackson a member, but he was a leader. He had served as Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of Tennessee from 1822 to 24. But in the election of 1832, the anti-Masons had barely made an impact. It was in the election of 1836 that they would rise to power in the state of Pennsylvania, and by uniting with the Whigs, the Anti-Masons would hold the key to the election of 1836 in the palm of their hands. This is Episode 11 of American Elections Wicked Game, 1828, The General's Vengeance. On the next episode, the election of 1832, President Andrew Jackson goes to war with the political establishment, the National Republican Party, and another Westerner with a very different vision for America, Henry Clay. If you're a careful Wicked Game listener, you know in the credits I mentioned my friend Professor Greg Jackson and his podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. It's a great show. But one way it can doesn't suck even more is when you listen to it without ads. You can listen to all episodes of American Elections Wicked Game, all episodes of History That Doesn't Suck, and all episodes of many more great history podcasts without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com. History That Doesn't Suck is a deeply researched chronological survey of American history from a trained academic who also knows how to tell a story. Plus, in addition to ad-free listening to one of the best American history podcasts out there, you get scores of bonus episodes at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com. This episode contains reenactments and dramatized details. And while in most cases we can't know exactly what was said, all our dramatizations are based on historical research. American Elections Wicked Game is an airship production. Hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. 
Sound design by Derek Behrens. Music by Lindsey Graham. Co-executive produced by Stephen Walters in association with Ritual Productions. Written and researched by Stephen Walters. Fact-checking by Greg Jackson and C.L. Salazar from the podcast History That Doesn't Suck.